This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the US Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSE Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and my guest for today is Robin Wilson, a freelance research software engineer, amongst other things. Robin got his PhD in complex system simulation from the University of Southampton and has not only done interesting research during his PhD, but also started during his undergraduate career. And hopefully we'll get to learn about some of your current work and your past work during the podcast today. So Robin, welcome to RSE Stories. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So let's start with where you came from. Can you take us back to when you first got interested in research or software engineering? Yeah, so I mean, I, I started programming many, many years ago. I remember programming on, a, on an old BBC microcomputer at my primary school, kind of developed from there. I suppose the first time I started programming and, and doing proper software engineering in a big way was after I'd done my A-levels. So for non-British listeners, that's the sort of qualification you do at about 17, 18 before you go off to university. Um, between those A-levels and university, I did a year called a year in industry, where I went and worked for a real company, got paid real money to do some, some real work for a year before I went off to go and do my undergraduate degree. And I worked for a company called British Energy, who run nuclear power stations in the UK. And I was actually employed to write software to control parts of nuclear power stations at the age of 17, which was quite cool and quite scary. But I learned a lot. Um, obviously, all my software was checked and everything before it went into operation. So it's perfectly safe. But it's quite cool to think you've written software that is, as we speak, currently running at Sizewell Power Station on the east coast of England, controlling parts of it. Since then, I uh, went off to university. I studied geography at university, but very much brought my computing knowledge into my geography, uh, writing bits of code to do various things throughout my degree and starting to get interested in satellite imaging and geographic data processing. Um, so I developed a lot of expertise in that during my undergraduate. As you mentioned in the introduction, I did bits of research during my undergraduate as well and actually presented some papers at academic conferences based on my graduate dissertation. And then I started a PhD, which was officially in complex system simulation. It was done through a doctoral training centre at the university, which involved work on computer simulation. I did a lot of stuff to do with simulation of light going through the atmosphere and its effect on uh, satellite imaging, because obviously the, the effects of the atmosphere can be seen in satellite images, and sometimes you want to remove them if you want to kind of ignore them. Other times you want to amplify them so you can find out what's actually going on in the atmosphere. So I did quite a lot of stuff in that during my PhD, along with a wide range of other computational stuff, which was sometimes related to my PhD and sometimes not really related to my PhD, possibly to the frustration of my supervisors. After that, I spent some time working as a postdoc and also working with a non-profit organisation, which I'll probably say a bit more about later on. And then I moved into freelance work and I'm now working as a combination of a research software engineer, data scientist, freelance academic, software engineer, all sorts of things, doing, doing all sorts of different things. But I enjoy it and it gets me paid, so it all works out quite nicely. Wow, so I have a lot of questions. First, you said your primary school had a BBC micro? Yeah, so I'm not actually that old, but my primary school was quite backward in the computers it had. It, we didn't get a new, a sort of modern Windows computer until I was almost leaving primary school. And so, yes, we had old-fashioned BBC microcomputers. And my first programming was written in BBC Basic with, you know, 
10 print hello world 20 go to 10 and and all that sort of style stuff <laughs> when i was in primary school the, the primary school got their own email address so when i was off sick one day my dad decided he would email the primary school the note saying sorry robin's off sick today this is what yeah and my primary school didn't get it for like two weeks because they never bothered to check their email because no one used it at that point oh no <laughs> well hopefully you didn't get in trouble you said you went from British energy and you jumped into geography. What kind of inspired you to study geography? Yeah, so that, that was weird and it confused a lot of people. I remember on my goodbye card from Vidic Energy, one of my colleagues wrote, thanks Robin for your hard work, but why geography? Exclamation mark. And basically, I guess my logic was... Well, I really liked geography and I liked the breadth of geography, particularly the balance of the human and physical aspects of geography. So, you know, looking at human behaviour in, in one way, but also looking at very physics-y sort of things like the behaviour of rivers and glaciers and the atmosphere and so on. And I had quite a lot of experience of software development and programming by that point and had learnt quite a lot of computer science myself and felt that almost doing a computer science degree would be kind of duplicating a lot of what I've taught myself and that it was probably easier to pick up computer science and programming things from you know tutorials online and online courses and things whereas it'd be a bit harder to pick up some of the geography stuff from that and so I take the opportunity to have a properly taught geography degree bringing in my computing knowledge rather than kind of the other way around. That makes a lot of sense. So you said you're working as an academic freelancer. I found this cool blog post on your site where you were essentially auctioning off a day of work, like everything from data science to teaching and reviewing. I'm wondering if you can tell us like how you decided to do that and what your auction projects have turned out to be and how. Yeah, yeah. So, so this was a few years ago. So just to give a bit of background that I'm sure we'll talk about a bit more in a moment. A number of years ago now, probably about five years ago, I started getting ill and became disabled and had to radically reduce the amount of work I was doing. I went down to part time, initially kind of three quarters time, then half time, then quarter time, and eventually had to give up work because I just wasn't well enough to work. And I started getting back into work a couple of years ago after a bit of time to kind of try and get a bit better. I, I, my, my health conditions are still a problem and, and I'm still disabled, but I I managed to get a bit better at managing them. And I wanted a kind of gentle way to get back into work. And there's a guy whose blog I follow called David McKeever, who writes on all sorts of things to do with software engineering, programming, but also a lot of psychology and all sorts of very interesting stuff. I strongly recommend you look him up. And he came up with the idea of auctioning off some of his time and said, look, I'm an experienced software engineer. I'm experienced at these things as well. You know, bid for my time and I'll do anything you want me to do within reason. Um, and I thought, well, that's an interesting way to get started and see whether anyone does actually want me to do any freelance stuff and whether there would be actually be a market for my kind of skills. So I did that and I got a number of bids ranging in price very significantly, almost by an order of magnitude difference in price that they're willing to pay for the, for the day's work. And some of them, I mean, I got a sort of data science sort of project. I got a startup in America wanted me to provide them with some training and advice on using a bit of software that I wrote during my PhD that they wanted to use to simulate some atmospheric effects on, on one of their satellite sensors. 
I got a really random bid from someone who just wanted me to review some Python code, you know, all sorts of things. And in the end, I ended up taking up pretty much all of them, or at least all the ones that were giving me a, a sensible amount of money for the day. And that developed into some collaborations that led to some more work when I really got properly started with my freelancing. So uh, you've been doing freelancing since then, and you've been able to support yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky that I'm married to my wife, who has a full-time job, also as a software engineer, in fact. If she brings in the, the sort of primary wage for the household, so I know that I don't have to worry too much about being able to pay the mortgage and, and afford the bills and so on. But it has given me you know, a, a reasonable income over the last couple of years. And it's worked very well for me because I've been able to still work part time and be very flexible with when I work and how I work and do a range of really interesting stuff. Have you also continued doing research and kind of being a part of the more like research side, similar to the work you did when you were for your PhD, or are you mostly sort of developing software? In these so days? I'm doing bits of both. So I've done some work with some universities working on some research projects, but it'd been broadly in my field of sort of geographic data and satellite imaging and so on. I was working on some machine learning work to do with UAVs, so drone imaging of river beds and, and river systems and trying to classify these images in various ways to understand things like can you measure water depth easily from a drone and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so that was fairly similar to my sort of professional work as, as an academic. I've done bits of work with, with other sort of research sort of things. It depends, it depends how you define research, really. I mean, you know, I, I sort of call myself a, a kind of research software engineer, but you have to start asking the question, well, what's the, where's the boundary come between sort of a data scientist and a research software engineer because you know someone who's doing data science stuff you know processing data analyzing data writing interesting code to you know, produce and analyze various data sets well they're kind of doing research because they're trying to investigate the data and work out what what they can see from it and they're kind of doing software engineering because they're writing code and you know ideally they're writing sort of reproducible robust code to do this where does the boundary come between that and what you might consider to be a traditional research software engineer to the extent that any such thing exists who's you're know, working on your know, big research codes that run on high performance computers or, or whatever there's, you know, there's definitely a sort of fluid boundary there so back a few years ago when you originally got sick how did that change how how you thought about yourself how you perceived others think about you and how did you adapt to having a new understanding of yourself? Yeah, so it was it was tricky and it, and it still is tricky. You're going from being a basically pretty much perfectly healthy young man who can you know, do all sorts of physical things and can work long hours doing important work you know, and so on into someone who, to begin with, was sleeping for 20 hours a day is a big shock. And it's a big shock to me. It was a big shock to my wife. You know, it was very scary. No one really knew what was wrong with me. No one really knew what to do about it. I, I used to joke that I'd been to every department in the hospital, apart from, you know, obstetrics, gynecology and geriatrics, none of which applied to me. And, you know, I was having investigations and scans and all sorts of things. And in the end, I was diagnosed with ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known sometimes as chronic fatigue syndrome. And unfortunately, there basically is no no cure. There's no drugs particularly that help with it. Uh, it's very much about balancing your limited energy reserves, pacing yourself, trying to sort of work within your limits and, and learn what your limits are. It was very difficult for me when I was first diagnosed. I was working as an academic. I was, I was a postdoc at the time 
as a lot of you will know, academia is, is a place that has a lot of overwork and you, know, you never really get told that you've done enough or that what you've done, kind of, you can stop there and have a break and have a rest. So I was working on, you know, half a dozen different projects. I had my main postdoc project, but I had all these side projects. I was supervising students. I was doing all sorts of other things like that. And suddenly I, I couldn't anymore. And I gradually dropped down my hours. I started doing less things or trying to do less things. And it was really difficult because a lot of my my identity was bound up in my academic work. A lot of my identity was bound up in the academic model of achievement, as in, you know, get papers out, get papers out, get papers out, get funding, you know, all of that kind of stuff that lets you tick the boxes that let you feel like you're being a good academic. And it was really tough. And I went through you know, various things to try and get help you know, through occupational health at the university and through various government things. There's something in the UK called access to work, which unfortunately didn't really help me access work because it was a bit rubbish. But there's various other sort of support things like that. But yeah, it was really, really tough. And it's taken me you know, a number of years to try and come to terms with this. The other thing that happened around that time, well, a bit of a way into my illness, was it became clear that I really couldn't walk very far and got very, very tired when I was walking more than kind of 50 metres, 100 metres or something. And doing that repeatedly, you know, walking around my building at, in, at the university or whatever, was very, very draining and would completely exhaust me. So I started looking into wheelchairs, which again was a shock for me and for people close to me that you know, this, this young man, I was only in my 20s at the time, was suddenly going to start using a wheelchair. And if there's one thing actually that I want people to take away from, from this about disability, it is that if you need a wheelchair, then a wheelchair is actually a great enabler for you. It's not restrictive. You know, to, to, to somebody who is fully able to walk, a wheelchair is restrictive because they can walk up hit upstairs they can run they can do all sorts of things that you can't do in a wheelchair but for me the choice is between not being able to go anywhere at all or using a wheelchair and suddenly the world opens up and because lots of places not everywhere by any means but lots of places are fairly accessible I can go to lots of places and that really gives me freedom and so actually when my wheelchair is off being repaired which it has to be every so often I'm hugely limited in what I can do and I'm basically stuck at home a lot of the time so a wheelchair is really a huge enabler for me did you find that transitioning from kind of a traditional academic and needing to write all those papers and moving into something eventually that is more of a research software engineer where, you know, you might write a paper, but it's not like do or die. Is that a better fit that do you feel that you have a stronger identity now with being a research software engineer? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I still have a, I still have this sort of bit in the back of my mind that thinks papers, papers, papers. And I still kind of check my Google Scholar profile and go oh look I've got citations to my papers isn't it exciting and then I realized that nobody really cares about the citations to my papers anymore you know I'm not using that as a I don't need to use that as a marker of my worth I don't need to use that as a way to kind of get promotion or something and I think actually that's quite a you know looking back on academia academia is quite a toxic place and there's quite a lot of bad approaches to life in general that are taken in academia. I I sometimes amusingly describe myself as a recovering academic, which is probably more true than I'd like to admit that I'm still recovering from some of the approaches I took in the academic days when it was all about overwork, all about producing papers, all about working non-stop. 
and that just isn't feasible for me with my health and I was destroying my health to the extent that I couldn't spend any time with my wife or I've now got a child you know I couldn't do any of that because I was working so hard and then just completely collapsing in the evenings and that just isn't feasible and doing this freelance work flexibly a different you know, I can do it whenever I want to during the day. I can do it when my, when my son's at nursery. I can do it in the middle of the night if I can't sleep. I can you know, take on work or drop work as I get better or worse. It, it's, it works so much better for me. I really like that term, recovering academic. I think I'm definitely a recovering academic too. And it's interesting that you mentioned kind of this constant need to still go check citations. I feel like that's probably a common experience if you're someone that starts like heavily rooted in traditional academia and then you go toward being an RSC. Like even in my mind, like papers are kind of still in the back of my mind. I, I know that that doesn't prove that I'm valuable as a worker, as an RSC, as like a human, but it's somehow still ingrained in me to just be aware of that. I'm not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> no, no, I think I, I kind of the way I was brought up and, and you know, coming through my PhD and thinking about papers and getting things out and getting jobs. And I, you know, I was very much my plan was very much to go down the traditional academic path in from PhD into postdoc into lectureship and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And oh, I'll be a professor by the time I'm 40 or whatever. And it took quite a while to come to terms with the fact that 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 isn't happening. And that's OK. And actually, I can have a probably have a better life without that happening. And, and, and that's OK, too. So you've been navigating kind of the same space you were in before, but now you're literally in a different perspective because you're, you know, going around campus in a wheelchair. What have you noticed now about how everything in academia is set up from like the buildings to going to conferences? What is really not ideal for a disabled person? No, it, it just really isn't. Um, I, could, I could talk for hours about this, but I'll try and give just a few examples so at the university I was at, there was an easy way when you chose to book a room for a lecture or a seminar or whatever to make sure you to tick a box saying it needed to be accessible for students. If you had any disabled students in, in wheelchairs or whatever, but there was no way to find rooms that were accessible for the actual staff, the lecturers who wanted to be at the front of the room. And a lot of the lecture theatres were designed that you came in at the back, you had tiered seating. There was no way I could get down the tiered seating in my wheelchair. There was no way in at the front. So what was I meant to do? Get everyone to turn around in their seats and lecture from the back of the room? I mean, it, it, there were about half a dozen lecture theatres on campus out of the sort of hundreds that, that were there that I could actually teach from. There were other things the university did. You know, I, when I went to my first conference with my wheelchair, the university said they wouldn't, their insurance wouldn't cover my wheelchair while I was at the conference because it was a personal item and I'd made my own personal decision to bring it. And it would be like if I'd chosen to bring an expensive diamond ring with me. And I kind of pointed out to them that the wheelchair isn't really very much like a diamond ring. And I didn't really have much choice to bring it with me. And that also airlines have a very frustrating habit of breaking wheelchairs. So it really did need to be insured. And I eventually got them to make sure it was covered by the insurance. But that took me liaising with HR, the equality office, the the you know, insurance office, the faculty office, and goodness knows who else, and about, you know, three weeks of lots of work to try and get them to actually cover this. And conferences are, are a big one. I've been to a number of really great conferences, but so often you find that conference organisers just lie about the accessibility of places. So I went to a conference, and I, I know the, the, the organisation won't mind me mentioning them, because 
they did everything they should have done. It was the Software Sustainability Institute in the UK, of whom I'm a fellow, and they were organising their collaborations workshop, which is a, a great conference to go to. And they checked, as they should have done, with the venue, said, oh, you know, is, it, is it accessible? Is it wheelchair accessible? We've got a, you know, we, we want it to be accessible anyway, obviously, and we've got someone in a wheelchair coming. Is it fully accessible? Oh, yes, it's fully accessible, say the venue. And I get there, and I find that if I want to go to the toilet, the only accessible toilet is through four locked doors from the conference room, the, the main room we were meeting in. And I was originally told that I would have to call a security guard every time I wanted to go to the toilet. I decided that given that I was no longer in primary school, I didn't really like the idea of having to ask permission to go to the toilet. Uh, so my wife, who was at the conference with me, memorised the key codes on the on the doors that we had to go through and scribbled them down so that we could get through the doors myself without calling the security guard. I'm sure completely against the rules, but I wanted to be able to actually have my independence, really. And we went to a conference dinner in the same venue one night of the conference. And I you know, wheeled into the venue on my wheelchair. That was all fine. And we had the dinner. It was all very pleasant. So at the end of the evening, we were going to leave. And I wheeled out towards the exit and found a flight of stairs and said, oh, you know, can you direct me to the, to the accessible exit? Oh, I'm sorry. There's no way out of here without going up the stairs. I said, well, there was a way in here without going up the stairs, you know, two hours ago. Oh, no, the main door's locked now. Well, OK, can you get a key and open it, please? Because, you know, how else am I going to get out? Oh, I don't know if we've got a key for it. You haven't got a key for the main door? So anyway, after sort of half an hour of them going and searching for the key, they decided the only thing they could do was carry me up the stairs, which I declined and said that luckily I could walk enough to be able to walk up the stairs and some people carried my wheelchair up. But you know, that's just absurd. Lots of people couldn't get out of their wheelchair and walk up the stairs. Wheelchairs aren't designed to be carried. The forces on the wheelchair are, are different and they can easily damage the chair. You know, it's just absurd that there's no way out of a venue that I've got into accessibly. And that's before you even start on the venues that are completely inaccessible to begin with. So all of that's kind of the physical stuff. And then as we've talked about already, the relentless pressure of academia and so on, when you're dealing with so much else in your life, trying to deal with all this health condition when you're so fatigued all the time, you know, that's impossible as well. And the two combined together just make everything really, really difficult. So when you're at these venues and these conferences, how have your interactions with people, so like sort of tiny, you know, coffee talk kind of interactions, have, how have they changed? One thing that's actually really interesting is I'm probably getting a, an image of what it's like to be short. Because when I'm sitting down in my wheelchair, even though I'm a, I'm a fairly tall person, I'm six foot two, but when I'm in my wheelchair, I'm a lot shorter than that, obviously, because I'm sitting down. And so you realise that at kind of coffee times and things, you're squinting upwards with your neck kind of cricked back to try to be on the same level as people. And, and sometimes people unintentionally are sort of talking across you, above you, because you're just not in their, in their eye line. So that's just kind of one weird way. But I also found that, at, for example, this conference where it took me 10 minutes to get to the toilet through four locked doors, by the time I got to the toilet and got back in the break, the break was over. So there was no time to network with anybody because, you know, I, I spent all my time navigating the, the inaccessible building and, and had no time left. Do you find that people want to kind of engage with you and ask you, you know, why you're in a wheelchair? And if you're in a situation like that, like what would be the right way to engage with you and talk to you about that? People who'd seen me before and then met me and I was suddenly using a wheelchair usually had a, oh, my God, what the hell's happened? 
and uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> people in the wheelchair community joke about how you should give you should give amusing answers to this question, like, oh, I got into a fight with a bear and lost both my legs and and all this sort of stuff, which you know, I, I don't tend to do. And I'm happy to people who I know a bit from before. I'm happy to explain things to. There are certain people who seem to believe that people my age can't be in wheelchairs because it doesn't you know it doesn't happen to people in their 20s and 30s it's only people in their 60s 70s 80s that use wheelchairs which is complete nonsense of course they then feel like they have to ask what on earth happened to you which is completely inappropriate for someone who you don't know to suddenly demand detailed medical information about you so in general I think sort of don't ask particular particular information um potentially you know ask about how I found the accessibility of the venue, particularly if you're one of the organisers and you come up to me and go, you know, is everything okay for you as a wheelchair user here? You know, is it all accessible? Is there anything else I can do to help? That's great. Listening to me rant about how bad accessibility is at a bad conference is also great because it helps me get it off my chest. But just sort of coming up to me and going, oh my God, you're in a wheelchair, what's happened? It isn't really appropriate. The one exception I make for that though is for children, particularly children who are young enough to be very curious and not know any better socially, but want to learn. And I want to make sure that they completely, they understand what's going on. So if, if children ask me that when I'm out and about, doesn't tend to happen at academic conferences, obviously, but you know, when I'm out and about generally, I'm happy to explain to them that, you know, I, my legs get very tired and I can't walk very far and, and sort of demonstrate the features of my wheelchair and let them have a look at the control panel and, and all that kind of stuff. Because I think that's important actually for them to learn what's happened and how things happen and, and that this sort of these people using these wheelchairs exist and they are normal people you can talk to as well. When you talked about talking to people and kind of having the experience of a short person and then, you know, not being able to leave a venue that you went in, it kind of made me think of just basic human equality. So how would you say disability relates to this idea of equality? I think disability is is one of the often forgotten aspects of equality. And people talk a lot about gender equality and sexuality and race and religion and so on. You know, in the UK, we have these protected characteristics under the Equality Act, which are things like race, gender, sexuality, age, that kind of stuff. And it includes disability. Disability is, I think, the only one of those things that you can suddenly become without wanting to. And you suddenly become this sort of group that isn't treated with as much equality. You know, I, I was perfectly normal, as it were, before I became disabled. And then this happened. It happened you know, maybe gradually for me. It can happen suddenly if you get in a car accident or something. And then you have to navigate this new life and you realise that you are excluded a lot and that you aren't taken into account in, in a lot of things. And you know, just things, all the things I mentioned about university campuses and, and elsewhere, you, know, you find there's, there's no dropped curb on the road or you know, everyone's booked to go out to a restaurant. And you know, yes, the restaurant is technically accessible, but the only way for you to get to your table is for pretty much everyone else in the restaurant to stand up and shuffle out of the door. So the space between the chairs for you to slide down. You know, and it's all, all that kind of stuff that you just don't think of at all. You know, things like the size of lifts. You don't think about the, how big a lift is until you try and manoeuvre a wheelchair and out of it without hitting the side. And then you think, oh, they could have made this lift, you know, just, just six inches or a foot wider and, and it would have improved my experience of using it tenfold. So there's a lot of stuff there that just isn't considered until people suddenly run into this situation themselves or a loved one and they suddenly realise what life is like. You mentioned something that I've been thinking about. So I'm part of a DEI working group and we're, we're fairly new. We've only existed uh, during COVID. So it's always been fully remote. 
And we do a lot of talking about diversity in terms of ethnicity, race, and gender, but I feel like we leave out everything else and it makes absolutely no sense. How can we, as an RSD community, get a better understanding of these different kinds of diversity and needs in our community and then actually do something about it. So, so your, so your life isn't so hard when you like go to a conference and then they lock the, the front door. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the key thing with all of this stuff is, is to talk to the community and listen to the community and you will find, particularly with something like disability, there will be people in your community who are disabled already and they may not publicize the fact uh, to, you know, if, if you're not doing something physical with, with wheelchairs and things, you don't always need to publicise it and it doesn't always go down brilliantly well if you do. So there'll be a lot of people with hidden disabilities who don't talk about it. You know, if I'm not using my wheelchair because I'm you know, just at home and I, I don't need to use it you know, for things longer than for very sort of short distances, you couldn't tell there was anything wrong with me. But it's still affecting my life at that point, and it's still affecting what I choose to do and how I choose to do it. So, simply, there are lots of people with completely hidden disabilities, with mental health issues, with with all sorts of other things that are just not taken into account because maybe they don't mention them, they don't publicise them, or the people in charge don't ask about them, and so they don't know. So I think you know you need to talk to who's who's in the community, find out who's there and what they're struggling with, and what you can do to help with it. With the things like conferences and so on, often you'll find that people aren't there because they assumed there would be no accessibility for them because there was nothing on the website about it. There was nothing in the advertising about it. So one easy thing you can do there is you can make a you know, make it very clear on the information about the conference, either that this is accessible already and be booked a venue that we've checked is accessible and this is what the venue says and this is this and you know make a kind of list of accessibility information but if not you can just put something on the website going you know, if you want to attend and you think there are issues that mean you cannot attend for whatever reason you know, contact this email address we will get back to you very quickly and we can work out a way that will work for you to attend just putting out something there to say we don't know what problems there are because we are not disabled ourselves but you know talk to us we will do whatever we can to help during the corona apocalypse have you found that you know having conferences that are fully remote has it been just a breath of fresh air yeah i mean there are issues with remote conferences and you know, you don't get some of the same experience uh, various other issues but yes i mean the fact that i can join a conference literally from my bed uh, is wonderful because you know, one of the conferences that I went to this year was going to be held in Northern Ireland. Now I live in, in the south of the south of England. You know, to get there, I would have had to fly to Northern Ireland. Flying with a wheelchair is a real pain, partly because they keep breaking wheelchairs and partly just because it's a big faff. I have to like give the airline about five pages of documentation on my wheelchair battery to prove that it's not going to blow up in the middle of the flight. So you know, I just wouldn't have gone to that conference because it was just too much of a faff. I was able to attend it from my bed. So that was really useful. I think it's going to be very interesting what happens as we get out of the coronavirus period, hopefully. And your various people are talking about doing hybrid conferences where you can have remote and local attendees. And there's going to need to be a lot of careful work put in there to make sure there's a sort of parity between those two different groups and, and you don't get massively disadvantaged by not being able to attend in person. I totally agree. I'm one of the people that's going to stay remote when everyone goes back. It's not going to be a regular or a common thing at my institution. So I'm kind of worried that I'll be left out, but I guess we'll just kind of see what happens. Yeah. Okay. So we're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions to kind of close up our discussion on disability. If you could give three pieces of advice 
for other people to take either on how they communicate or how they think to just make the world a better place in terms of having support for people with disabilities, what would you say? So first I'd say listen, listen to the people who are disabled, listen to them in their communities and find them in your community. They will be there even if they're a bit hidden and find out what they want, what they need, what the problems are in your particular area, whether that's your particular institution, your particular sort of career path, your particular organisation, whatever it is. Secondly, I'd say as well as listening to them, proactively ask them. So when you're booking a conference, proactively ask people what they need. When you're booking a meal for your research group, proactively ask if the places you, you can't go are the foods you can't eat. Don't leave it to people to spend their time raising the issues. Raise them first of all and get people to you know, ask people so that they know it's okay to raise them. They know that you're interested in the answer. Third on here, I think, is taking into account issues with productivity, overwork and, and those sort of expectations. A lot of people with disabilities have a lot of extra work to do in everyday life. They have a lot of extra doctor's appointments, maybe, that take time, or they've got to do a lot of resting to try and manage their condition, or they've got to go and sort out medication in very short periods, or they've got to spend all their time badgering conference organisers to get things accessible, or fighting with the university to get the right rooms to teach in, or whatever. It all takes time. And if you're in an institution or an organisation that is really pressuring people to overwork themselves, to get things done at any cost, to try and get as much done as possible in the time, that's going to be very exclusionary to a lot of disabled people. And so just stepping back a bit on that is going to be good for everybody. There's this concept called the dropped curb effect, which basically says that things that help disabled people nearly always help other people as well. They just don't think of it so much so you know a dropped curb on a regular pavement helps people in wheelchairs but it also helps people with pushchairs and buggies for children it helps delivery drivers with little trolleys that are carrying heavy packages you know it helps all these sort of things so it's a really useful thing to do for everybody and the same applies with things like overwork and, and productivity expectations if you can just step it back a bit for everybody yeah so that you're not pushing people quite so hard you won't have as many people going into nervous breakdown anyway but it will also make it far more possible for people who are disabled to work in your organization. So for our last question, when you aren't freelancing or doing your research, what do you like to do in your free time? I guess I'm the kind of typical geek in some ways, in the sense that I do bits of programming and that kind of stuff in my free time just for fun. I do a lot of reading. I have a number of sort of topics I'm quite interested in that are nothing to do with my academic work, but are still quite heavy going. I read a lot of stuff to do with space and a lot of stuff to do with railways and railway signalling I'm a bit of an expert on and, and so on. I enjoy playing the piano and spending time with my family. I like doing interesting things. I like doing stuff that keeps my interest up, even if it's not in stuff that I'm actually qualified in. It's just stuff that I find quite interesting. Robin, it's been such a pleasure having you in RC Stories. You are so vibrant and interesting and just like full of energy. And I'm really glad that we could hear your story because I agree that we need to do a better job at really understanding disability in our RC communities and really doing everything we can to make the community more friendly to people like yourself. This story is just so important to have on the podcast. And I'm so grateful that you came on to tell it today. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me.